thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. On ktalk.co.za On the app On DSTV channel 885 And across the city on 567am Join the conversation This is Cape Talk This is Cape Talk Every Friday it's Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist Where he answers your science and natural history related questions remember he cannot diagnose you for a medical ailment also can't offer you any medical advice if you have an issue go to your clinic your doctor um science and natural history related questions chris i hope you are well we having a a crisis here in cape town with the uh, the price of cooking oil skyrocketing we're uh, known as a fish and chip a hake and chip city um the uk of course known for its fry ups it's fish and chips if you're up uh in scotland it's fried mars bars how is uh, <laughs> a, the cooking oil crisis affecting the great the, uh, the United Kingdom at the moment. Stereotypes with abandon there, Lester. Um, well, <laughs> yeah, the price has gone up and we've seen some supermarkets that are limiting people where there was limits because of panic buying of bog rolls and things in COVID. Now there's panic buying of cooking oil. So supermarkets, some supermarkets are limiting people to a couple of bottles of cooking oil at a time. You think, how much cooking oil can a family use? I mean, come on. These people must be the sizes of houses if they're buying more than two bottles of cooking oil at a time. I mean, this is a this is all part of the knock-on effect of what mm. is going on from a range of directions, isn't it? Mm. We've got the impact of COVID, which which has had an impact, but but has begun to ease off and shuffle off. But now we've got the impact of what's happened with Russia and Ukraine, mm. and this is having a food impact. It's having an energy impact, and there will be lots of knock-on ripples because at the moment mm. we're still living the legacy of where we were before all this kicked mm. off, and mm. coming later in in the year ahead, we're going to see some of these ripples turn into much bigger waves, actually, mm. economically and otherwise. Yeah. Well, let's start there and talk about gastronomical sciences and, and food chemistry. Zuki, I see you'll be with you in a, in a very short moment. But I need to ask Chris, why does certain cooking oils, whether it be soy oil, palm oil, canola oil, sunflower oil, olive oil, why do they all have different heat points and why do they make it all different for the type of food that you want to cook? What really matters about an, an, an oil that you use for cooking is the chemical composition because the different chemistry that's in there affects what happens when you heat that oil in terms of how it behaves as a, as a fluid but also what happens to it when it reacts with other things in the cooking, other things in the oil, the oxygen that the cooking is occurring close to and all of those things together affect the performance of that oil and ultimately the chemicals and the flavours that it will impart into the thing that's cooked in it. And what we tend to obsess about is whether oil is uh, monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, or 
very much grease-saturated fat. Animal fats tend to be highly saturated. In other words, if you look down a really powerful microscope at the carbon chains which fats are, oils and fats are, are hydrocarbons. There are lots of carbon atoms linked together in a long chain. If you have a saturated fat then the saturated means that the bonds linking the carbon atoms are completely filled up and you have a long single chain of carbon atoms and that means they organise themselves into a really beautiful straight line. And if you've got one chain like that, it can get very close to and stack up with another chain like that and another chain like that and that's why grease is greasy and you get solids at, at, at mm. room temperature. But if you start introducing different bonds into the mixture, so some monounsaturates like olive oil have a double bond. In other words, one carbon doesn't shake hands with with four other atoms. It makes a, a special bond where it's shaking hands twice with the atom next door to it. This is a different shape. So the chain becomes a bit kinky. And because the chain is a bit kinky, mm it can't stack up so easily close to other chains. And so as a result, the oils don't form uh, a saturated pile in the same way as you do with grease. So the oils tend to have different melting points. They are therefore uh, more likely to be a liquid at uh, a lower temperature than those saturated ones are. Mm. And polyunsaturates just means there's lots of those things. This affects the chemistry. And if you have things with lots of these double bonds in it, they're more reactive than things that are saturated. They can mm. therefore change their chemical nature. This will change the flavour, the oxidation status, and this will in turn mm. impact on the flavour of the food, as will the, the proportion of different types of, of oils that are in there. So it really does mm. matter what, what you're cooking with in terms of what flavours you're going to end up with. Zukim, Big Bay, thanks so much for holding on. Brian in Somerset West, I see you. We'll be with you after this. Uh, Zuki, your question. Good morning. Good morning, Lesson. Good morning, Dr. Chris. Um, so I am terrified of lightning, right? And I'm the type to like crawl under the couch or into a cupboard when there's a lightning storm. When my mom, she just carries on like nothing's happening. She'll watch TV, do the ironing, etc. Now, recently I read about... Um, lightning being conducted through the pipes or like through the, the plumbing. And I wanted to know, is this possible firstly? And secondly, in, in modern houses, like what are the risks um, when there is a lightning storm? Zuki, I don't know if you grew up in a house with lightning and superstition, but um, <laughs> I know of many people who cover the TV and mirrors and don't touch and the mirrors when there's a girl. lightning storm. But Chris, your response? Morning, Zuki. The answer is that anything which is a conductor, in other words, made of something like metal, can convey electricity. And if a lightning strike hit that conductor, it could come along that conductor. And if you're holding it, then it could go into you. But we do try to safeguard against that because things like the plumbing in modern houses because of building regulations is all connected to an earth spike. So anything that got into the plumbing would be directed to earth. And this is because if a cable, for instance, broke in your house and, and the mains shorted onto the plumbing, you wouldn't want the person becoming the route to earth. You want the plumbing and then the earth spike to carry the electricity harmlessly away. And this also means it's a bit safer when there is a, a lightning storm. But if you have a lightning storm close to your house and the whole ground potential goes up, because if lightning hits the ground or hits a tree or something, it's going to put a lot of energy and therefore a high potential into the ground around where it hits. And if that means that that's close to where your earth spike is, then your entire house potential can go up. And this may not be harmful to people, 
but it can visit anything that's connected to the earth in your house. And so some sensitive machinery, for example, computers, televisions, other technology, can see itself getting quite high, can see quite a high electrical potential, and it can damage the circuitry. And we, we've had computers that have been damaged in this way, which is why you're advised, if you've got expensive equipment or you're in a specialist environment, buy one of those special earth isolator boxes, which basically separates your equipment from uh, that possibility so the machine that the, the power supply cleaner dies rather than your specialist equipment if there is a big surge coming up the earth for example but if you're holding a pipe and lightning hit the pipe yes you would potentially be raised in potential too but because we've got these building regulations that, that draw the stuff out to earth this is largely not a problem anymore and things are much safer than they used to be and the likelihood of being of your house being hit is very low there are some areas which are much higher risk of, of being uh, hit by lightning storms, and we all know where they are. But for the average person, it's lower than one in a million that you're going to get hit by lightning, and that means either directly or indirectly. So I think the risk is really very remote. Thanks so much, Zuki. Brian, Somerset West, good morning to you. Good morning to you and Chris and the listeners. Um, I'm just watching sand artists building uh, a replica of the Titanic on the beach. And it made me wonder, why is it that ships' portholes are always round and not square like normal windows? Is it stronger to make them uh, round, or is it easier to uh, drill into the steel to make round windows, or is there another reason? Hi, Brian. It's the same reason that if you look at aircraft, they tend to put round windows in the aircraft. And the reason you put rounds in is because if you have something that's not round, you've got a corner. If you've got a corner, you've got a potential stress point where you will force and focus vibration, stress, and therefore you are more prone to cracking and you're more prone to propagation of a crack and, and failure of the skin or hull of your of your vessel, whether that's an aircraft or, or a ship. So it's much easier, much safer and much stronger to build round portholes or other apertures because then you have no focal point of stress and therefore you can make the skin of the aircraft or vessel that bit thinner you'd have to over engineer it very hard and to a great degree to get the same level of strength and safety if you had a, a stress point that would be caused by having a corner Thanks so much, Brian. Let's go to a quick voice note. Remember, 021-446-0567. Drop me a WhatsApp, 072-567-1567 for your science and natural history questions. Let's have a listen. Good morning, Lister and Dr. Chris. I'm wondering, what is the actual storage capacity of the human brain in terms of bytes, kilobytes, gigabytes terabytes in in the case of my children probably a kilobyte or two but i read a lot of sci-fi books peter f hamilton and, and they talk about memory crystals where you download your memories and elon musk is talking about chips and brains and so on and so forth but what is the actual storage capacity of a human brain is it recordable chris well we we don't really know um I mean, what we do know is how many nerve cells we've got. There's about 100 billion of them. And we know that each of those nerve cells makes connections to between one and 5,000 other nerve cells. And the information is stored in those connections. So when you have a memory and when you're recalling a memory, what you're doing is reading a pattern of connections in a circuit of clusters of nerve cells in certain parts of the brain going along with certain bits of memory. So we don't really know 
what the limit is, but there must be a theoretical maximum one because our brain is finitely big. You don't have an infinitely big brain with infinite numbers of connections between the cells and therefore there has to be a cap on how much information you can store. But what the brain does very well is what when you save a picture on your phone or you send uh, a WhatsApp picture to, to somebody, there's a lot of compression going on. What we mean by compression is that the brain takes what you saw because in each of your optic nerves there's a million nerve fibers going from the eyeball into the brain and so you've got huge amounts of information flowing in but your brain is throwing away a lot of it and inventing other bits of it so you don't actually see the real picture because if you did you'd have sensory overload and when we make memories the brain will take various bits of information and say well rather than store all of these detailed excruciating pieces of information I'm going to combine a whole bunch of it into one packet of information and say that whole bit there was blue I'll remove some of the nuanced detail and so as a result we throw away a lot more than we store and so when you recompile or piece back together memories you're doing it by taking a lot of making a lot of assumptions and also memory is flawed it's not perfect there are some things we do remember discreetly because they really matter like your bank card number but when we recall memories and we recall pictures of things and we recall experiences very much that is a filter that has thrown away a lot of the information and is only presenting to us a snapshot of it and then creating a lot of it again from scratch. How you felt, you know, this was a happy occasion. You don't have to remember exactly what your heart rate was and what your hormone levels were to recall a happy occasion. Your brain says, label that as a happy occasion and then when I recall that memory, just turn on the happiness switch and that's how I must have felt. But you'll therefore still be seeing that very much through a filter of what you define as happy now not perhaps what you felt then or, or your historical re reference for happy so we don't really know exactly how much data we can store but there has to be a limit because of the finite size of the brain and it will vary from person to person and also there's a subjective influence that one person's definition of what they remember and remember well is quite different to another but it will certainly be measured in gigabytes it, you would certainly need a very big memory stick to make up for what the human brain can do it's an amazing amazing organ Ed Kersnoff, how are you doing this morning? No, fine, and you? Yeah, Alison, everything's okay. What's your question? Well, talking about happiness, is there some way or is there some practical way to measure the endorphins in your body mm -hmm. so that you know, I mean, it's supposed to make you happier, right? So is there, are there any way to measure that if you, if you want to measure the endorphins? in your body I, after exercise i totally get that because sometimes you're so happy that you literally want to ex ex explode <laughs> uh, my, my my kid often uh quotes um something from what's the movie despicable me where this girl gets a little fluffy unicorn and she says i'm so happy i'm gonna explode could you actually explode with happiness and endorphins chris well, first of all, you have to say, well, what is happiness? And happiness is a construct in our brain. When we feel happy, we can, re we can reduce that to basically a cocktail of nerve chemicals. The brain's pleasure or happiness chemicals including, include one called serotonin and another one called dopamine. And there are parts of the brain which, when you are feeling ecstatic and exhilarated, you see an increase in the levels of those particular nerve chemicals in those parts of the brain. So basically the brain has a pleasure switch, and when it's turned on, you get a sensation of good feelings, 
you feel content, you feel very happy or ecstatic, or even like you want to explode, as you've, as you've said. Can we measure that? Well, yes, we can. We can actually measure that signal, and you can put people in brain scanners, and you can demonstrate that when they get these feelings, they have a big escalation in the levels of those chemicals in those brain areas. They will differ between people, and different people are going to have different sensitivities to the amounts. So some people may be driven wildly, ecstatically happy by a small amount of these chemicals, whereas other people may be a little bit more cynical with age, perhaps, and they are a bit grumpier, and they need more of them to feel happy in the same way so there are other more objective measures we can use as to whether or not someone is happy a happyometer if you like so what psychologists and sociologists will tend to do is rather than just think about uh, resolving happiness and contentedness to one measure of neurochemicals they'll look at a range of lifestyle measures how often does a person go out how far do they move in a day what do they do with their day who do they talk to How many words do they write? How many words do they say? How many times do they smile? Those kinds of things can all all be added to the equation to work out what we rank as happiness, but it is very much a subjective thing still. We have some objective measures, but it's very difficult, actually, when you take a person at random and just ask them, are you happy or not? Because obviously that's a very labile thing that's going to change. And also one person's definition of happy is very different to another. And some people are very happy with very little. Others are very, very unhappy with a huge amount. And so because of that, enormous disparity in how we measure this it makes it a really hard problem to solve mm. um before we get to gary do do we know if other animals feel feel this feel happiness or or, or sad or disappointed is it was it essentially based on you know our cerebral cortex and our frontal lobes that humans can ex- particularly express those emotions of happiness, being sad, etc. Obviously, we can't go and ask a simpler animal like a mouse, do you feel happy? But you can certainly watch their behaviour and you can watch how they behave in circumstances which are very similar to circumstances that make humans happy. Eating a nice meal, meeting friends, playing with a toy. Animals like dogs and cats all do this. We see very similar brain structures in their brains as we have in our brains light up when they do things that when a human does those things a human says they feel happy or when a human does those things they say they feel sad as these animals have very similar brain structures and they have very similar patterns of brain activity when they do similar things it's reasonable to infer that they are deriving some kind of pleasure Mm. signal some kind of experience that they enjoy and if you look at young animals they'll play now we play probably to teach us important life lessons and we enjoy it so in order for an animal to do something if you add an element of pleasure and enjoyment to that they're more likely to do it more often food is one good example if you go and eat then you feel good and that reinforces the food seeking and nutritional value of going and getting a food and drink and similarly when you play Animals probably do derive pleasure in that way because it's, mm. it's reaffirming to them this is your part in your animal society. This is how you interact with others. This is what you have to like. This is what you have to be scared of. Mm. Gary and Franchuk, thanks so much for your patience. Jill, in Dukai, I also see you, but good morning, Gary. Hi, morning, Lisa. Morning, Dr. Chris. I would just like to know, why do certain foods uh, affect you differently when you fast? <laughs> Thanks so much. Uh, why do certain foods affect uh, your flatulence levels, uh, 
Chris? Gary, good morning. And there always seems to be a fart question on this programme, one way or another, or it sort of works its way in. It's an interesting theme or trend that, isn't it? First of all, what's a fart? Well, farts are intestinal gas, and the average person probably deploys about 10 of them per day, and the average fart volume is between 120 and 150 millilitres per day. So you're farting in the region of a litre of fart gas a day. And as we all know, they come in various shapes and sizes and odour profiles. And what matters or what determines the smell and volume of a fart is basically what you have fed to your microbiome, because farts come from intestinal bacteria. Your intestines contain probably a kilogram of microorganisms and whatever you can't digest or take away from your food gets shoved into your large bowel where most of them are and they will get to digest the rest of your dinner and some things they will digest and turn into non-gaseous products but some things they in the course of breaking them down and digesting them they will produce gas in the same way that when you brew up beer or wine the yeast produces carbon dioxide as a byproduct these bacteria do the same thing as they metabolise the things that are in our food that we haven't absorbed. They will yield gases that do it. Now, most of the gas you produce is probably carbon dioxide, a little bit of hydrogen, and there's also some methane. Some people's microbiome has bugs in it which are capable of, of producing methane, CH4 gas, from the carbon that's in the food that they've eaten. But if you also eat food that's got a lot of sulphur compounds in it, then the sulphur compounds tend to be metabolised into things like hydrogen sulphide and sulphur dioxide, again by intestinal microbes. And those are the whiffy ones. The sulphur compounds are the ones that tend to be quite smelly because of the shapes of the molecules and the way that our noses are programmed to pick up those particular gases. So they, they do smell very strongly to us. And so really it comes down to what have you eaten and what profile of microbes do you have in your guts? Because those two things determine what gaseous products the microbes make and in what sorts of volumes. And that then determines how likely you are to be able to do one of those silent but deadly ones versus things that are noisy <laughs> Um, a, a pleasure to deploy but are not unpleasant for those around you which we've all been there we've all seen the and had the experience what's the song uh, beans beans the musical fruit the more you eat the more you toot the more you toot the better you feel so eat beans with every meal Jillian Tukai good morning good morning to you um, I wonder if, if, if yeah, I could just ask uh, Chris this question what is it it gives some people such an absolutely photographic memory where they can literally remember mm. the page, exactly what was said, even the side of the page, it, it, things like that. It's, it, it's very enviable to those of us yeah. who have fairly good memories but really don't remember that kind of detail. I think I remember this question coming a couple of weeks ago, but I may have forgotten. Chris? <laughs> Very funny. It's like the what is deja vu? Haven't we answered that one before? Uh, retort, isn't it? The answer, Jill, is that everyone's brain is different and the brain is also a product of what you do with it. It's effectively a neurological muscle. And in the same way that if you exercise a muscle, it gets stronger. If you practice, then you get much better at these things. And people who have good memories, many of them have just practiced. And also they may subconsciously practice. Some people, when they have a bit of downtime or they're doing a relentlessly repetitive task like mowing the grass or something, they may be thinking through things and processing things or repeating things back to themselves. Just the 
way they are. And sometimes you'll run through and reinforce information in that way. I mean, I know a lot of stuff because I took enormous efforts to try and learn a lot of stuff and remember a lot of stuff. And if you do this a lot, you do make your brain more receptive to taking on board information and remembering it if it's part and parcel of what you do. So it really is that some people are just born with lots of connections in the brain that makes it easy for them to store and retrieve information. And there are some people who are exceptionally good at that. There are also people who've learned how to learn and how to remember. And everyone can do this. And there are some simple techniques actually that make learning information easier but some people do find they have a memory it's it's wrong to say like a goldfish because goldfish don't have a two-second memory it turns out they have a very good memory and it's really long uh, researchers in australia showed that goldfish and other other fish can remember things for years so um, we have to abandon that particular saying but you know what i mean so some people are just born with uh, the ability and they can top it up a bit with with further practice but everyone can improve their memory if they learn a few simple t- tips and tricks mm. to store things and consolidate memories in ways that they find makes it easier to retrieve now chris uh we have time for one last question and little just a little inside secret for our listeners if you're going to stress that your question is for a six-year-old then i have no but other choice but to ask that question but this is for six-year-old aki here why do stars twinkle our star our sun is a star but it doesn't twinkle for us. Of course, stars that we see now are millions of light years away. What makes stars twinkle? But our sun, which is a star, doesn't twinkle. Hello, Aki. The reason that stars twinkle is because the light from those stars is coming through the Earth's atmosphere. And the Earth's atmosphere is 100 plus kilometers thick. So it's a layer of gas around the Earth. And there will be parts of the atmosphere that are, that are thicker and warmer and there'll be bits that are thinner and also colder. And when you've got light travelling through thick and thin bits of the atmosphere, that has the effect of bending the light a bit. And that's because the light changes speed when it goes through those patches of the atmosphere. So when you're looking at a distant star, and actually if you're looking at stars in the Milky Way, they may be up to 100,000 light years away, then you're seeing light that's travelled through thick and thin bits of the atmosphere and has bent and warped and speeded up and slowed down. And this has the effect of making the light twist and turn a bit as it comes to your eye. And that has the effect of making it look like the star is shaking, shimmering or moving, or as we say, twinkling a bit. The reason this doesn't happen with the sun or doesn't measurably happen with the sun is the sun's much closer to us and deluging us with so much light that even though the there will be some of the light passing through thicker and thin bits of the atmosphere which will make the light speed up and slow down a bit the effect is so strong from the sun that you don't notice the twinkle because the sun is already far too bright to look at and you shouldn't look at the sun directly anyway because it will damage your eye if you do that. Dr. Chris Smith, as always, it's a pleasure. Just a quick message from one of our listeners. Um, Dear Lester, up until now, my day has been now, but I just turned on the wireless and I heard Dr. Chris talking about farts and the smile is back on my dial. Thanks so much. It's easy for some of us, isn't it? (laughs) Dr. We were talking about what makes you happy earlier on in the program, weren't we? And there you go. Farts make some people happy. That's all it takes. Tin of beans. Dr. Christmas, we have a kid show for you next week with some young people going to be asking you questions. Really looking forward to that. It's always a favorite of ours. Take care. Enjoy your weekend, sir. And you. Bye -bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? 
Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.